fourth watch starts now. Everybody, you're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be a supernatural exploration of an age-old practice dating back to the fallen angels teaching their ways to mankind, spreading far and wide across every continent and every culture, and being practiced to this very day. Today, these practices have resurfaced in our modern world as a way to get reconnected with the spirit realm and are demonically targeting different demographics by different means. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I call this episode Into the Spirit Realm with special guest, Ark of Destiny Lab. Well, it's Thursday again, and I'm so excited to be back with you all, and it has been a crazy but awesome week working with Doc Marquis, so it has been a very action-packed week. I want to say a big thank you once again to everyone who's been so gracious to give and further the good fight of the Fourth Watch Ministries, and I pray that the Lord would multiply your gifts back unto each of you richly. If you're feeling led to help support this ministry, you can head on over to fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T.com. That's fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you can easily give by clicking the PayPal Donate button on the right side of the screen. If you would rather mail your love gifts and support, you can write to Justin Fall, J-U-S-T-E-N-F-A-U-L-L, Fourth Watch Ministries, that's all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H Ministries, P.O. Box 1145, Snellville, Georgia, 30078. That's Snellville, S-N-E-L-L-V-I-L-L-E, Georgia, 30078. All gifts should be made out to the order of Justin Fall. We truly appreciate your support as we're growing and reaching more people each week. Now, if you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard on the 4th Watch Spreaker page, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com, Spreaker.com. There you can search the 4th Watch or Justin Fall. You can go to the 4th Watch Blogspot page mentioned earlier. You can also go to the Justin Fall YouTube channel, or you can subscribe for auto-download in iTunes. Now, I recommend that everybody just easily download the 4th Watch app for your smartphones and mobile devices for free. And this way, you're going to have the easiest listening experience on the go. If you want the app, just search Justin Fall in your app stores for Apple and Android. I'm also pleased to announce that FourthWatchRadio.com will be officially launching soon and will be a one-stop hub for your Fourth Watch experience. So praise God. Now, tonight is going to be an interesting discussion as we'll be unmasking the ancient practices of shamanism and exposing the modern-day revival and proliferation of its practices in the mainstream culture trend. When we hear the word shaman, we often think of witch doctors and face paint. 
waving around a talisman or branches while blowing smoke from their mouths or even a mass guru dancing around a fire. And that concept is right. But to this very day, we have practicing shamans continuing the demonic practices that have long been passed down through tribal tradition in almost every tribal group of every continent. The term shaman is generally defined as a person regarded as having access to and even influence in the world of good and evil spirits. Typically, such people enter into a trance state during a ritual and practice divination and even healing. Shamans have a great deal of knowledge involving hidden things of the earth and its vegetation and even esoteric recipes for many traditional potions and hallucinogenic compounds. The shamans have always been looked up to in tribal regions as spiritual gurus with valuable leadership skills, almost like an esoteric version of a pastor. Tonight we want to examine some of the practices that are taking the masses by storm as they seek to experience spiritual fulfillment. As we will see tonight, they are seeking this spiritual fulfillment outside of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in turn, they're entering into a dangerous and demonic place and sometimes even resulting in an untimely death. Now, real quick, I want to draw us into a basic worldview that seems to be popular today, and this is stated by Graham Hancock, who is a popular mouthpiece in this particular area of demonic shamanistic practice. Now, I'm not in agreement with any of this, but rather I'm covering this to give you all an idea of the polluted mindset that's fueling this movement. Researcher and author Graham Hancock presented his thesis that supernatural entities such as aliens and fairies are in fact trans-dimensional beings that humans encounter during altered states of consciousness. The ability to shapeshift has been ascribed to both modern aliens as well as elves and other entities reported centuries ago, Hancock detailed. According to Hancock, around 35,000 to 40,000 years ago, Humans underwent a sudden change and the emergence of cave and rock paintings are evidence of this change. Hancock also noted that some of their depictions were of creatures that were part human and part animal. He believes these represent the supernatural entities and through altered states, probably due to ingesting plant hallucinogens, humans learned advanced skills from their encounters with these supernatural beings. Nowadays, shamans frequently have such altered state communications. They feel humanity is at a crossroads. They say the West has lost contact with the spirit world, and many of the world's woes are due to this. Now, this isn't just Hancock's opinion or shaman's opinions, but also a trending belief in various forms of New Age religion. As part of Hancock's experiential research, Hancock has traveled to South America, and he took this psychedelic brew known as ayahuasca. During one such episode, he described a confrontation with an alien being, but rather than being an extraterrestrial, Hancock suggests that it was an inhabitant of another dimension that can only be accessed when in an altered state of consciousness. Now, we will address some of these claims tonight, and we will be joined by a very special guest who is a researcher, radio host, musician, and a good friend of mine. We're talking about none other than Ark from Destiny Lab. So let's go ahead and check out the interview that I did with Ark a while back. Just go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about what you found out about the modern-day shamanism. Uh, well, it's it's kind of fascinating because there's a lot of overlaps within shamanism, uh, the occult, evolution, the study of transhumanism, and all these other subjects that I talk about. And so I kind of just stumbled into it. Um, 
And through uh, my research, I was able to actually meet a few people uh, that had personally experienced some of these partakings of things like DMT and ayahuasca and some of these these drugs that they were uh, into that seem to be very prominent and uh, talked about today by a lot of the different prominent features or prominent people out there like Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell, people that have podcasts and are, are uh, you know, really pushing these agendas, Graham Hancock, people like that, uh, they seem to be really into the idea of shamanism and the idea of talking to other entities and how can we do that. And uh, through my research, I, I discovered a lot of different things. I mean, it's, it's I don't know which way you want to go with this, but... Uh, Let's go ahead and just let everybody know. Uh Ayahuasca is a drug. It's a hallucinogenic drug found in nature. And this is one of those drugs that will take people, uh, in, in past shows I've, I've mentioned slightly, just, just kind of brushed on the topic of spirit walks, people taking these spirit walks, and it's really, it's a hallucinogenic trip. But it's not just a drug thing. We're talking about a naturally occurring substance that people will take to communicate with these entities and it will it will push them and I'm going to be bold here but I believe that what they're doing by taking these certain substances and mixing these substances I believe that they're able to open up their eyes to experience another dimension. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Now this is becoming really popular today. And so when when you hear the word tonight you're going to hear DMT, you're going to hear ayahuasca, you may hear some other terms, but what we're talking about is a natural occurring hallucinogen that's been used by shamans and witch doctors um, and different people from different tribes throughout history. And now we have a synthetic version that's being produced in the United States. And it is illegal. It is totally illegal in our country. But kids are getting a hold of it. Now, we're going to talk about these things. I just wanted to make everyone aware of what exactly ayahuasca and DMT is. And ARC is going to break it down a little more for us. But these things allow people to enter into a spirit walk. With that said as an introduction, Art, go ahead and tell us a little bit about ayahuasca and DMT, just to set the scene, and then we're going to move into how it's being used and what the effects are. So uh, ayahuasca is actually a a brew, and it's actually something that's been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years uh, in uh, different uh, cultures like uh, Peru and the Amazon rainforest, they've actually discovered this in different parts of the globe. And what's interesting about uh, the active ingredient in ayahuasca, which is called DMT, or the medical term is dimethyltryptamine, this, uh, this particular drug uh, or chemical is actually all around us. You can find it in all types of grass, all types of, it's in cattails, it's in all kinds of plants uh, that we have uh, all around us on a regular basis. But if you were to ingest these plants on a regular, uh, just by themselves, with DMT, your gut enzymes actually break down that active dimethyltryptamine ingredient to where you wouldn't have any effect. But these, the brew that they've concocted is a, is a mixture of this DMT uh, root and then also a bark uh, off another tree that's able to counteract uh, the enzymes effect that, that happen where your gut usually breaks down that process. And so this allows the drug to directly enter your bloodstream through the gut 
and it's a very it's a pretty uh, violent process. The people that go through it have a a really big purging, and they start throwing up and and violently vomiting. Um, and this is all part of the process in this this shamanistic ritualistic uh, adventures these people are going on, and they're told that this is you know they're cleansing themselves, and the idea is that they they face their deepest darkest selves and confront the evil that they believe that they're afraid of that they believe is only in their mind to then become enlightened and reborn as it would. So. I believe this to be a counterfeit version that's trying to fill the void that we all have within our hearts, which is a longing and, uh, to reconnect with our Creator and to become born again, as it would, you know, to become cleansed of our sins. And the enemy knows that you know people have this inherent knowledge, and he's able to create counterfeits and illusions that seem to mimic. Uh, filling that void for a short period of time. And he's able to do this through all types of, of different things. Um, and this is just seems to be one of the more uh, popular ones at this moment, but it's been going on for thousands of years. I mean, this, nothing's new under the sun. This is just something recently promoted by uh, a lot of people that are into other new age kind of occult concepts. This is a concept that is not only being pushed by celebrities, but we see it even in movies and television. And like we've talked about in the past, the Illuminati is real good at telegraphing their punches. The Illuminati likes to come in because they control the media system. They control the movies, totally satanic run Hollywood. What happens is they will just put little tidbits of truth, not God truth, but world truth, new age truth. They'll put it into the movies, put it into the TV shows, and it will allow people to see something they might not have known about. And then they kind of, they, they get triggered into wanting to learn more about this topic. But you're talking about ayahuasca here, and ayahuasca is far, far more powerful than taking a drink. So the drug, the ayahuasca, these shamans for years have been mixing it with something that allows it to be fully digested. That's what you're telling us. And they've been able to chemically reproduce uh, dimethyltryptamine without having to go through the whole ayahuasca process, which was what you were talking about earlier which is what a lot of kids are, are getting access to, which is either, which is usually smoked. It's, a, I think, a, a powder or some sort of a crystal form, and they smoke it. And that only lasts for maybe, I think, 10 to 15, 20 minutes, from what I'm told and from the uh, interviews I've done with people who have personally taken it. Kids are doing it nowadays. I spoke with somebody, uh, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, who told me that they were addicted to it at one point. And that's what I shared with you on the phone yesterday, which is kind of crazy to think that somebody would be addicted to DMT. But as we're about to talk about, as we're about to learn, people get addicted to the ayahuasca experience. So can you tell us a little bit about how that works? How is this thing set up in Peru to where people are able to go down and, and go through? It's, it's almost like a carnival cruise from what you were telling me. Correct. Yeah, it's it's being set up. It's become so popular. There's actually fake shaman school uh, centers being set up that are just you know drugging people and robbing them. Some people have been killed. Women have been raped, and so it's it's become so popularized that now the people within some of these uh, you know poor communities, there's you know people basically lying and claiming they're shamans and. Uh, and completely taking advantage of people. So it's, it's dangerous in that regard as well. But um, 
you know, this is this is really popularized back in you know uh, the '60s through Timothy Leary and Ralph Metzner and uh, and Elvis Huxley and people like that. Terrence McKenna, of course, was was another big proponent of DMT and what he talked about taking heroic doses. So he wanted people to really you know, take a, a huge dose of this stuff so they could really lose their mind. And what's fascinating, if you really study these things, is the spiritual aspect, especially when you include the shaman, because people report different interactions with different spirits depending on the shaman and depending on what's called the Icarus, which is the uh, chants or songs that the shamans chant before the session or as the session is going. And these Icarus are what they used to call in the different spirits of the jungle uh, and through their particular lineage of, of teaching. So and so each of these shamans actually are known to provide different uh, experiences. And people that uh, report these interactions actually tell of the entities they interact with remembering them and remembering friends that have gone on the same journey with those shamans. So they'll, you know, they'll be in the deep in these uh, other dimensions, interacting with actual entities. And these entities will say, oh, it's been a month since I've seen you, or I I saw your friend here, you know, two weeks ago or whatever, as if these are, you know, not hallucinogens, but these are actual gateways, as you were talking earlier, to other realms. And the evidence seems to back this up. The other thing that's really fascinating is people report having these interactions with entities at the moment they set their intent on making a trip to Peru before they ever take the drug. So time and time again, you'll hear these people once they've got their plane tickets, they're actually set their intent on going there. They start being visited in their dreams by these same entities that they later uh, confront after they take the drug. Now, okay, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. And if I didn't know any better, I would probably think this is just total hullabaloo. But I'm telling you guys, this this stuff lines right up with what's been going on for thousands of years. I mean, this even goes back to the ancient aliens propaganda, okay? Because, I mean, okay, so I don't want to get off track because we've got so much to talk about tonight. But... What you're talking about here, this is this is just right in line. I got to make a comment real quick because you said that these these entities will say, "Oh, well, it's been so long since I've seen you or your friend." This is what we call a familiar spirit. Correct. Yeah. These are spirits of old. These are the spirits of the fallen ones. So, I mean, basically, to the best of my knowledge of the research that I've done, this is either a disembodied nephilim spirit, or this is a spirit of a fallen angel that's visiting people. I mean, I, I don't know any other way to look at this, but these, you know, we go back to the word demon, and the demon, the name demon comes from the Greek daemon, and that literally means enlightened one, smart one, intelligent one, or it could just be a descriptive word of intelligence, greater knowledge. So these things are smart, they're ancient, they're not they're not some little spirit that just poofs up like a genie and then goes away. These things are existing right now, and they know what's going on. They know the people that communicate with them. Now, they're not omnipresent, but they can be channeled, and they are channeled. And, and something scary is a lot of these people today are claiming to have – they say they're getting messages from Elohim. 
They say which we know they're not getting messages from Yahweh Elohim, the real God. Okay, we know this because he's not going to reveal himself to people outside of his word. But these people are getting revelations, messages from what they're calling God or gods, messages from extraterrestrials, and they're doing this through channeling methods. And many times they're doing this with the use of psychedelic drugs. Tell me exactly. The people, the people buy their plane ticket. They start having visions and dreams, and then by, by the entities that they're going to be speaking with. And so, so take me through a walkthrough. What happens? Uh, so yeah, most of this is geared toward uh, kind of the rich trust fund kids. A lot of these, you know, to be able to afford to even go to Peru is, you know, could be ten thousand dollars or more just to go through all, you know, one of these entire journeys. Uh, and you, a lot of times, a person will have to stay there for a week or more because you you take you go through several sessions. They usually do at least three ayahuasca sessions, and um, and there have been a, a lot. The thing that's been popularized with this, and I believe how a lot of it started, is through uh, people who are addicted to things like heroin and very uh, physically addictive uh, substances. They describe this as a reset button to the soul. And so when they go down there, it basically, what I believe is happening is they're, they're in some form or another becoming possessed or experiencing a, a demonic possession or oppression and that this is able to give them a counterfeit version of this idea of being born again, you know. And this is the same philosophy that the that the mystery schools and secret societies have all believed, you know. And the idea of the hero's journey always portrayed in the media that a man must, you know, come and face the darkness, jump into the abyss, let the serpent swallow him, and then on the other side he will be the perfect uh, enlightened being. And this is, of course, started in the Garden of Eden when the serpent told Eve, if you eat of this fruit, ye shall be as gods. So nothing's new under the sun. This is just the same original sin repackaged over and over again. Like you said, the ancient ones, the incubus, succubus beans, the, uh, the elves and fairies of old. Now that evolution has been uh, convinced to the masses, they've now taken the form of aliens because, of course, there must be you know, smarter, much more uh, intelligent beings far out there that can teach us dumb humans uh, how to become enlightened beings like them. Um, now, the the other thing is if you, there's a guy named Rick Strassman, and he's probably the most famous person that's been pushed at least the DMT side of this, DMT being the active ingredient of ayahuasca, and he did a Netflix documentary called DMT, The Spirit Molecule, in which he gave a number of people uh, high doses of this drug. Coincidentally, this entire, uh, this entire documentary and all of his research was funded by the Blue Lodge of Freemasonry. Look into that. But uh, which they have their own, they had their own ritual of being born again and, and, and baptized, uh, the whole Hiram Abiff thing. Yeah, there. I mean, the higher ups of skull and bones of and Freemasonry are deep into the idea of the pineal gland and the third eye, and and this of course crosses over to what some people believe they're finding within 
DMT, that, that the pineal gland or the third eye within our brains or within our head actually produces this DMT drug. But that's a little misnomer because DMT is actually found within our entire bodies. It's in, there's more DMT in our lungs than there is the pineal gland. It's all over our body. So it is a chemical that is a natural chemical that's found throughout nature and even within our bodies. But they're trying to convince people in some way, and, and I'm not sure, there may be some sort of corresponding truth that we don't completely understand, uh, that this is, you know, the seat of the soul or some sort of access point in which uh, you gain access to other dimensions or communicate to other people through other dimensions. And the pineal gland is the actual functioning gland, but these drugs just stimulate that gland to uh, be that gateway. So basically what this is doing is, it, like you said earlier, it's about coming in and trying to fill the void because they don't have Jesus Christ Yeshua. And without Christ, you cannot have communion with God because he is God. Yeah, yeah. And but so, it's a counterfeit. It doesn't last. That's that's the difference is these people, time and time again, it wears off. And they tell of this because they have to go back and back again and recharge and go deeper and deeper and darker and some of these people end up going hundreds of times and their life starts revolving around their DMT ayahuasca trips and going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole until they literally go insane. A lot of them kill themselves, end up in mental hospitals, uh, or just become, like I said, living spokesmen for this ayahuasca. But they never actually get to the point where they get to that enlightened state. It's just constant carrot on the stick where they have to go back for more. Now, let's talk about another tier. We'll just say tiers. Because, you know, you get into the occult and the New Age and witchcraft. I believe there's different tiers of people based on their practices. Mm-hmm. You know, some people have to have a medium like a Ouija board or a talking table. That You know, people, different people have different means of achieving the same end. So, and this is interesting. So let's say, because you've got these people who have to have some kind of a a drug to make their contact. Now, let's let's talk about another group of people. Because it seems that there's multiple groups of people in the New Age movement that are achieving the same ends by different means. So there are people who, since their childhood, have been having lucid dreams. I had a, a girl contact me. And she was. She let me know that she'd been having lucid dreams since she was about two or three years old. She started astral projecting uh, by the time she was about six, um, to the point now where she can astral project anytime she wants. And strangely enough, she's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and Asperger's. So she's a, she's a strange nut, okay? Um, according to doctors, doctors believe she's a little on the kooky side, of course, because they don't believe in the thing spiritual. But this girl was telling me. Uh, about her abilities, but she doesn't take any drugs to achieve her mm-hmm. her lucid dream state and her astral projection state. These are practices. Shamans believe that the spirit can leave the body. This is one of the, the age-old practices and beliefs of shamanism. And shamanism is not just Peruvian. I mean, we, there were shamans in the Native American cultures, and like you said, all over the world, there's shamans in Africa. Uh, David Icke has a buddy who's a shaman in Africa. And they communicate with different spirits to get this information that they're telling everybody, which is another reason why you shouldn't listen to David Icke. 
The guy claimed yeah. to be Jesus Christ at one point. I mean, the guy is completely demonic, and he's not a real truth seeker. But regardless, I don't want to get onto that. He <laughs> talks about taking drugs in one of his documentaries to communicate with these beings. This is exactly what's going on in South America. This is exactly what's going on even in our own country. A friend of mine that, uh, I don't want to say too much, but a guy that I knew from childhood, uh, he was talking about going on a spirit walk at some Native American religious festival ceremony that takes place every year and he talked about taking the peyote from a cactus which does grow in america and from what he said you communicate with the spirit world and it's a 72 hour experience wow now i don't know about you guys but 72 hours is a long time to be experiencing the spiritual realm when we know it's demonic (laughs) yeah wow it just shows how desperate people are for some sort of connection to a supernatural reality, uh, and Satan is, is happy to oblige in, in these signs and wonders a lot of times for these people who provide a counterfeit. What is your opinion? When somebody is on their, their ayahuasca journey, do you believe that it is the equivalent of an astral projection? I mean, what do you what do you think is, is really going on in that? Well, it goes back to kind of what you were saying earlier, is that there's people that are able to achieve these things without the use of drugs. Well, if drugs are the reason that these things are happening, then how do people also reach these same exact states and talk to these same entities through things like kundalini yoga, chanting, twirling, uh, you know, dancing, uh, any type of repetitive movement? A lot of times there's a, a number of different ways that people are able to reach these ecstatic states. And it's more about, I believe, intent. You know, back to the Ouija board, a Ouija board is just wood or cardboard. It doesn't have any power in itself. A person could make a Ouija board with paper or draw a line in the dirt. And if you have an intent to make that connection, then the the, uh, demonic realm will, you know, use that intent and that permission to as a gateway. And I think that's what it's more about is permission. It's asking this permission. It's opening yourself up. It's resisting. And that's how or stopping resisting. And if you look at people like Eckhart Tolle uh, and his New Earth teachings, who Oprah Winfrey is a big follower of, that's that's what he teaches is resist nothing, let everything in. And that's what these people get to, and that's what they're told by these entities is this exact same thing. They get to a very uh, scary point where they feel like they're going to die. You'll hear this over and over again, that people claim that they either thought they were dead or think they're going to die, and that this is called the ego death is what they, they claim that this is, and that once they experience this ego death, then they're, you know, then they're enlightened or a new man. They're a different person. And so we think about being born again as a Christian, you know, that we, our sins are forgiven, that we're actually, the Holy Spirit enters within us and we are made a new person through Christ. Well, Satan is providing a counterfeit version of this by telling people that they're experiencing this ego death, but he's literally taking them to the edge of this horrific, dark abyss, telling them to willingly jump in and allow the serpent to swallow them. And oftentimes these people even take on visions of becoming serpents wriggling around on the ground. Uh, And, you know, I did a, a podcast with a number of different uh, testimonies that I collected, and that's the things that people tell that uh, they think that they're they're told they're gods. They think that they're Egyptian 
great leaders from the past. They start yelling out in foreign languages. They start cursing God's name and blasphemous, uh, blasphemous things. Um, so it's obvious anti-Christian, pro-Luciferian agenda here. And the reason this is important, I believe, for Christians to study the things like aliens and all these kinds of things is this is tangible evidence that we can uh, put together an overlap between these all these unrelated subjects like, you know, so-called aliens, like DMT, uh, you know, trance-induced meditation, out-of-body experiences, sleep paralysis. We can look at all these different things and we can see a connective uh, storyline here. And we can also tell you that every one of these entities is deathly afraid of the name and authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. Satan appears like an angel of light. We know this. And it says it's no wonder that his ministers appear as ministers of righteousness. But this is the great part of that scripture, that verse. It says, but their end will correspond with their deeds. Mm. They know what their end is. They know their time is limited. And they know that Christ is going to crush them. One of the things that Graham Hancock said, and I thought this was interesting, he basically brought out this this thought that the confrontations that you can have while you're under the influence of ayahuasca basically can allow you to come back with, he didn't use the word technology, but he was implying that you would come back with some kind of knowledge of how to do certain things um, and it sounded like he was implying technology and further knowledge of how things work. I believe this to be true. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who act as willing conduits or channels who are not just channelers, not just, you know, people around a crystal ball. These are directors, artists, comedians, inventors who are direct channelers of the spirit realm. Nikola Tesla claimed he was a channeler of the spirit realm. He claimed... I do my works 10% perspiration, 90% inspiration. I get all my, my ideas through dreams. They're just downloaded to him. And there's been many inventors throughout time who have said the same thing. Joe Rogan claims he is a channel or a conduit. Duncan Trussell claims the same. And, and along with many, many other people I've heard claiming that that is the key to making good art, writing good scripts, is letting go, giving yourself over to this automatic kind of writing process or the spirit or then what they call the muse. Um, and the modern day muse is this Gnostic Graham Hancock philosophy. You know, he's an admitted Gnostic, which is a Luciferian. He, they believe Yahweh uh, was the bad guy and the serpent was the good guy. That's what they admittedly believe. And you talk about the serpent. We know that there's many tribes and cultures it really just grinds my gears when people are like, well, how do you know that that little group of tribal people in South America, how do you know that they're going to go to hell, you know, because they haven't heard the gospel? The fact is, a lot of times people have tried to go share the gospel with these, these different tribes and these groups around the world, and then they're killed. You know, they say, well, how do you know these people are going to go to hell? How do you know? Well, first of all, they can't be saved because their sin hasn't been paid for by Christ's blood, because they haven't accepted his sacrifice. But secondly, let me just just throw the blatant out there. They're worshiping Satan. They're worshiping entities of old. And sometimes they're directly worshiping the serpent, directly. 
Uh, many of the tribes in South America, they worship the anaconda serpent spirit. I mean, these things, so many, these new age modern Christians, they get up on the soapbox about, well, how do you know who's going to heaven and hell? And even Billy Graham. And, you know, Billy Graham is probably one of the, the, the keystone people that I point to of apostate. You know, I mean, he's been in so many different interviews and he's over and over said that people don't need Jesus Christ to go to heaven. Basically, as long as people are seeking some form of light, they're saved and they're going to be with, quote unquote, us in heaven. Well, first of all, Billy Graham, there's no us if you deny Jesus Christ. So by denying Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven. You are no longer a part of us, nor were you ever, because you can't have salvation outside of Jesus Christ, outside of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. That's how our sins are paid for. So anyone around the world, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're from Africa, South America, wherever, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God without Jesus Christ. We need to make that so emphatically clear, because I'm sure we've got some people listening right now who are probably dabbling in the New Age. I know this is a Christian show, but I've got a lot of people that listen to this show from all different backgrounds. So I'm just going to say this. If you're practicing these types of behaviors and you think that you're being enlightened by this, you are being demonized. Whether you're using drugs, whether you're using different methods of channeling, it doesn't matter how you're getting there. You're being demonized and you are not going to be saved through these practices. You can't be really born again through these practices. I want to make that really clear. We as Christians are called to be, uh, you know, it's the bride and groom of Christ. And we're, we're called to have that connection with Christ uh, through that spirit, through the Holy Spirit. And this is a counterfeit version. This is cheating on God. This is basically out there uh, having a relationship. If you think you're having a, some sort of spiritual connection, perhaps maybe that God does use the pineal gland. I, I have no idea, but he doesn't use it to contact serpents and aliens that tell you that you can become a God. Do you remember in the book of Enoch where it talks about the fallen angels coming and, and teaching technologies? Uh, it even refers to, I believe a statement known as root cutting. Yes. Pharmacia. Oh, and what's, what's interesting about that is it groups Pharmacia, the angel that spe- uh, specifically worked with Pharmacia, also specifically worked with witchcraft. They were noted as being one and the same. Now, the word Pharmacia, that's the word that we get our modern-day word pharmacy from. Mm-hmm. So, Pharmacia, Pharmacia, it all goes back to witchcraft and sorcery. Matter of fact, in the book of Revelation... The word sorcery talks about people not repenting of their sorceries. You go back to your Strong's Concordance, and that word is pharmakia, pharmacia. So, in the last days, during the tribulation, men will not repent of their pharmacia. That's directly linked to the practices of shamanism, drugs, using substances that control your mind and your spirit. Now, I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I want to cover a couple Uh, Just a couple more quick topics here. When we start talking about the chanting, we see this throughout history with the Native American Indians, South American Indians, African tribes. Chanting is a major practice in tons of these Gnostic, esoteric cults, tribes, religions. They will sometimes have the drum circles going on. They'll be dancing and chanting around the fire, sometimes with substances, sometimes without. One of the things that really stuck out here, and I'm going to kind of draw a little connection there's There are these videos all over YouTube of these Hindus 
and these Hindus are praying in tongues. Now, I, this is going to probably upset some of you listening right now. We don't have time to address the tongues, uh, the tongues, what, the real tongues of the Bible and the false tongues of the world. We're going to do that in another show. But they'll be chanting in tongues, and it sounds identical to what you hear in a lot of these modern churches. I mean, literally, they, their tongues sound identical to this quote-unquote prayer language that we hear in a lot of the modern churches. So they're, they're chanting in tongues, and then they fall down on the ground and start going into a serpent shape. Mm-hmm. Now, that, in the Hindu religion, I mean, <laughs> that's considered the kundalini spirit achievement. They're working to achieve the kundalini, and the kundalini is directly linked with the serpent. Yeah. And you see that carrying over into the modern church, but what's happening with all this is they're practicing these things without substances. This goes right back to what you just said. They're practicing these rituals without substances, and they think they're doing something good, and then they're getting results. They're falling out on the ground. Uh, they're calling it being drunk in the Holy Spirit. They're falling out. They're going into these convulsive states. They're shaking around. One of the women involved in the in the the New Apostolic group, Stacy Campbell, she goes into a hissing like she she starts banging her head and hissing like a snake. Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with these practices that are practiced by the shamans and the groups and the gurus. So this is scary because they're achieving these things without substance abuse. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it's really uh, important to look at those overlaps. I mean, if, like you said, if you look at the, the Hindus who've been doing this for thousands of years, reaching these ecstatic states through uh, chanting and twirling and, and different meditations, it's identical to what you're seeing, these same people who uh, access the kundalini spirit and the people within the, these churches. Uh, if you look at just people that practice kundalini yoga, they have this exact same movement, which is this serpentine, jerky, kind of creepy, demonic movement. And then there's all kinds of videos. I mean, if you're a a person with a discerning spirit, you can recognize this. I mean, it just just speaks volumes, just, you know, the visual aspects of it just speaks to your spirit that this is not something of God. And um, this is just, to me, like I said, another reason to study these things is because you can use these overlaps and connect these dots and use this to people as solid evidence. Here's tangible evidence that you can look at. You can test these things, look at them, compare them, and and come to your own conclusion. Why are all these people in all these groups hate God, hate Jesus of of the Bible, and yet they are, uh, you know, preaching this I am God delusion? You know, that's, which is the same thing taught in these churches. They're teaching this I am God delusion in a roundabout way that, you know, you can arrive at this Christ-like mentality or get Christ consciousness uh, through uh, the Holy Spirit, which is a twist on what exactly you're getting there. Now, the last thing I want to ask you about, you had made a, a statement yesterday on the phone that just blew my mind. Let's just briefly talk about the pineal gland. Okay. What's the connection with with the pineal gland and all of this? Uh, yeah, we could do a whole show on that. Let's um, just scratch the surface on it, and then <laughs> I'd like to have you back on to talk about the pineal gland. I know you've 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 really kind of dug into this topic and you've rapped about it in your music. Um, let just kind of scratch the surface. Give us just a little preview of the pineal gland. We can definitely dig deeper in another show. The idea of the pineal gland is nothing new. You know, we hear that talked about by hipsters like it's some new understanding or they just found this out. But this has been uh, known about 
uh, for thousands of years. This is the third eye, the dot on the forehead that the Hindus have. This is the cobra coming out of the forehead shown in Egyptian uh, mythology. So, And the idea of eating mummified pineal glands uh, goes back to uh, ancient Egyptian things, all the secret societies. Many of the secret societies like Skull and Bones are purported to eating pineal glands as part of their ritualistic ceremonies and that this is all part of a known understanding. Now, if you go back to look at old newspaper archives of the late 1800s, early turn of the century, there were all kinds of stories of people uh, doing tests on the pineal gland and actually feeding animals ground-up pineal glands of the baby animals, which caused these animals to grow to twice the size and, and have gigantism. And that there were stories of feeding little babies, of one- and two-year-old babies, ground-up pineal glands so we could uh, get more and turn them into giant soldiers to fight in war. These are actual newspaper archives. You can, we made a thing on Facebook called News, Old Newspaper Archives. And you can go to uh, Destiny Lab, uh, look up our Destiny Lab uh, site there, and it'll connect you to it. And we have all these archives there where they actually show a picture of Moloch uh, and these people blindly walking into the mouth of the fiery mouth of the pagan god Moloch and with a story talking about that we can create these brain-numbed robot babies, grow them up by feeding them ground pineal glands to fight in armies. This is unbelievable stuff because this goes back to the Nephilim and why they were giants and why they may have been cannibalizing people and drinking the blood of humans. Um, this goes back to Russ Dizdar's information of why people, you know, like sacrificing babies because supposedly the ba the children or only the pineal glands of the young are will have these effects of making people grow and live to long ages. So there are so many overlaps, and this doesn't even get into the crystalline structure of the pineal gland or melanin and how melanin connects to it, uh, transmitting frequencies and all kinds of things. I mean, there is really something going on there that, I, that we're just beginning to scratch the surface on. This seems to be recognized by these mystery schools for thousands of years. So these babies, these super babies, whatever you want to call them, they're taking these babies, they're feeding them crushed up pineal glands of other babies that they've killed so that they can get the pineal gland from. And then these babies, within a short amount of time, are, are growing into these monsters? Well, they don't actually do that with babies. They say that they could do that. And they show that they, they show pictures of chickens, twice the size, little baby chicks, that they did this process with, fed them, fed them ground up pineal glands, and they're twice the size. They did it with uh, rabbits twice the size they did it with pigs and they grew even larger than twice the size and so what they and they did feed up feed children ground up pineal glands that were retarded and they said that these children turned around and were much smarter after eating these ground up pineal glands but i i could find no information where they actually fed babies pineal glands to make them grow larger although i'm sure that they did but i can't actually find any evidence of that where they've done it um, but there are indications of people having tumors in their pineal gland growing to large statures and and also being connected to, uh, there's a story of a lady who had a larva, inhaled a larva through her nose, and a worm or a larva was growing inside her pineal gland, giving her visions of seeing dinosaurs and mastodons and acting like a crazy cat, like she was 
from prehistoric times. Whoa. And when they did an autopsy, they found this larva inside of her pineal gland. That's crazy. Yeah, and these are from the 1800s. Go to the site. It, we are finding things daily that are, this is a treasure trove archive that is untapped because they've put it on the microfilm, tens of thousands of newspapers, and they've created a, uh, a search engine type of technology that can actually search out words now within these old newspapers. So you can search out keywords of anything. We're finding things on free, uh, free technology uh, or free energy. I just found some things this morning on the Bohemian Grove, uh, talking about all kinds of, showing all kinds of pictures and talking about the rituals they do, uh, venerating Pan at the at the Bohemian Grove. It's unbelievable. Now we are um, just a little taste, guys. We are planning on doing a show on old newspaper articles, and Lord willing, if everything goes as planned, we're going to have Ark and Neo on the show. Uh, Neo's the one who actually put this uh, this group together on Facebook. I'm also a member, and I kind of got a little background doing some old newspaper research when I got into the Ouija board uh, teachings, exposing the Ouija board wickedness, and also uh, on the Nephilim. So uh, hopefully, Lord willing, we're going to be able to do a show real soon on just going through some really crazy old newspaper articles. But last thing on the pineal gland, and I just want to draw a little connection here, and I, I can't help but let my mind go into this direction. If we're talking about this stuff happening in the 1800s, they didn't have the technology that we have today in our country, at least, to the best of our knowledge. We know Daniel talks about an increase in knowledge in the last days. If they were doing this in the 1800s, think of what's going on now behind the scenes. And let me add one more thing. Based on what they're telling us in their research in the 1800s, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you've done more research than I have. I'm just trying to connect some dots here. But based on them saying that the pineal glands that are the most potent coming out of other children, other babies, why do you think abortion is being pushed more now than it has ever been in our lives? The conditioning for abortion. They're conditioning people to think, oh, we should have the right to kill these babies. This is crazy. And then you got Michelle Obama and, and some others in the Obama administration that have been really pushing and pushing for the the late-life abortion, why would they even introduce these thoughts? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think. I think this has to do with the pineal glands. I think the elite want the pineal glands. They know, based on past research and trials, the pineal gland has some major effects. So I think the abortion agenda has something to do with the pineal gland agenda. Just my two cents. Great points. I mean, you know, going back to... These ancient people not having, you know, microscopes or whatever to study chemical analysis of things, how would they discover these things? And I believe it's through literally eating them, uh, drinking of blood, charging the blood, charging the energies and doing these practices, doing different experiments and also getting this information from, of course, demonic realms, entities that they interact with. This is where they, you know, if you ask the shamans of every culture where did you find out how to mix these two plants to make uh, this MOA inhibitor that breaks down the alkaloids, you know, or the DMT? How did you find this out? And time and time they'll say, we didn't figure this out. The spirit, the plants of the spirit told us. They admit that it's from an outside source that gives them this information. They definitely didn't find it in the box of Lucky Charms. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I think uh, I think that this is going to be a great topic to talk a little bit more about on another show. Folks, I just want to say this. I listen to a lot of Destiny Lab. These lyrics, they're just they're they're getting into my mind and they're causing me to think and and it's not a bad thing. 
This is a good thing because music has a way of getting into your mind. And this is why it's so important to take in truth music, gospel music, music that honors the Lord, that causes you to think about what's really going on. You guys got to check out Destiny Lab. I mean, we're talking about not only, and I know, I know Ark is not, he doesn't like me, you know, puffing him up and he's not getting puffed up here. What I'm doing here is I'm plugging something that's a valuable resource. This is talent. This is truth. This is research all rolled into one. So I'm telling you guys, check out Destiny Lab. Go to YouTube. You can hear some of their songs for free. Uh, And then if you like the music, which I know you will, go to iTunes. Contact them on DestinyLab.com. Get the albums. You guys will not be in the least bit disappointed. This music is truth music. And I've said this on my Facebook before, and I'm going to say it again. Destiny Lab is fourth watch music. You know, many of you have been following me since day one. We're growing every week. The stuff we talk about on the fourth watch, that's what Destiny Lab is rapping about. It's fourth watch music. It's truth music. Forgive me for going on a rant. I'm not trying to pull Alex Jones and rant about a product for 30 minutes, but man. I appreciate it, man. I mean, all, all the glory goes to God. I I didn't create, stood out to uh, make Destiny Lab and make this music to be a rap star. I, I literally set this, made this music as a tool. Uh, I was convicted to do this, to, to be a tool for others, to, to be able to witness to others. So that's what it is, and uh, all the glory goes to God. Amen. Yeah, the other thing, if people are into YouTube, uh, a lot of our music has been put into videos uh, by a good friend of ours named Michael Myers, and he's made some incredible videos that really add a visual to what we're talking about, and they really act as a great witness to others as well. I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight, man, and uh, just wish you grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely, man. God bless, Justin. Thank you for doing what you do. Hey, man. God bless you, brother, and we'll talk soon. Well, that was interesting and definitely a lot to think about. But now I want to move us into a Bible study segment, and tonight I want to do something a little bit differently. I want to go back to an expository teaching that I did on Jonah. I'm really going to break down some elements of Jonah that many people tend to overlook as they study this passage. I definitely encourage you to take notes on this because there's so much to cover, and I don't want you to miss any of it. And this is one of my earliest Bible teachings that I have on recording. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Now, I was doing some research this week on the Bermuda Triangle. I was just doing a little bit of personal reading. It's an interesting mystery that surrounds this topic. Some actually believe it to be the area above the Garden of Eden that still remains underwater after the flood of Noah's day. Fact is, many people have come up with these interesting theories surrounding this area, but there's really not a whole lot of solid proof to back all of these up. But as I was thinking about the possibility of people disappearing in the middle of the ocean, I was reminded of a fascinating true story of one man who ran from God's commandment, and in doing so, he ended up disappearing in the middle of the ocean, more specifically, the belly of a great fish. That is, until he repented and chose to go on the journey that God had commanded him to go on. Of course, we're talking about Jonah here, the Old Testament prophet. Now, Jonah's adventure was pretty mind-blowing. So mind-blowing, in fact, that many people can't even fathom the reality of it. Even to this day, some scholars claim that it was not, in fact, a historical account. However, Jesus referred to this definitely as a historical event, and even pointed to it as a foreshadowing of his own death and resurrection. Interestingly, there are several documented accounts of people who have been swallowed by whales and large fish, and have lived to tell about it even after several days of being inside the fish. 
One species of fish, the sea dog, scientifically known as Carcharodon casharius, is found in all warm seas and can reach a length of 40 feet. In the year 1758, a sailor fell overboard from a boat in the Mediterranean. He was swallowed by a sea dog. The captain of the vessel ordered a cannon on deck to be fired at the fish, which then vomited up the sailor alive and unharmed after it was struck. Another fish, the sperm whale, can swallow lumps of food 8 feet in diameter. Entire skeletons of sharks up to 16 feet in length have been found inside the sperm whale. In February of 1891, James Bartley, a sailor aboard the whaling ship, the Star of the East, was swallowed by a whale in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands. He was within the whale for more than 48 hours, and after he was found inside the whale, which had been harpooned and brought aboard the whaling ship, it took him two weeks to recover from the ordeal. Sir Francis Fox wrote about this. He stated, Bartley affirms that he would probably have lived inside this house of flesh until he starved to death for he lost his senses through the fright and not from lack of air. He remembers the sensation of being thrown out of the boat into the sea. He was then encompassed by a great darkness, and he felt he was slipping along a smooth passage of some sort that seemed to move and carry him forward. The sensation lasted but a short time, and then he realized he had more room. He felt about him, and his hands came in contact with a yielding slimy substance that seemed to shrink from his touch. It finally dawned upon him that he had been swallowed by a whale. He could easily breathe, but the heat was terrible, he said. It was not of scorching, stifling nature, but it seemed to open the pores of his skin and draw out his vitality. His skin, where it was exposed to the action of the gastric juice, which was his face, neck, and hands, were bleached to a deadly whiteness and took on the appearance of parchment, and never recovered its natural appearance though otherwise his health did not seem affected by this terrible experience. So he swallowed by a sperm whale, and the only damage he really suffered was his skin was bleached. He was able to survive, no major health problems. Another individual, Marshall Jenkins, was swallowed by a sperm whale in the South Seas. The Boston Post boy, on October 14, 1771, reported that an Edgartown, USA whaling vessel struck a whale, and after that the whale had bitten one of the boats into two. It took Jenkins into its mouth and went under the water with him. After returning to the surface, the whale vomited him onto the wreckage of the broken boat, much bruised but not seriously injured. Now, as Christians, we don't need any documented fish stories to prove the validity of the Bible. However, these accounts just add some interesting facts to the case of Jonah, so I wanted to share those with you guys. There is, of course, a great deal of historical and archaeological evidence for the ministry of Jonah in Nineveh. Prominent among the gods of ancient Assyria was Dagon, a creature who was part man and part fish. This was sometimes represented as an upright figure with the head of a fish above the head of a man, the open mouth of the fish forming a mitre as the man's sacred headdress, and the feet of a man extending below the tail of the fish. In other cases, the body of a man was at right angles to the conjoined body of a fish, Images of this fish god were found guarding the entrance to the palace and the temple in the ruins of Nineveh, and they appear on ancient Babylonian seals in a variety of forms. Berossus, a Babylonian historian, writing in the 4th century BC, recorded the early traditions concerning the origin of the worship of this fish man. According to the earliest tradition, the very beginning of civilization in Chaldea and Babylonia was under the direction of a person who was part man and part fish who came up out of the sea. 
During Jonah's time, the people of Nineveh believed in a divinity who sent messages to them by a person who rose out of the sea, as part fish and part man. And they would undoubtedly have been very receptive to Jonah's ministry if he had been vomited out of a fish. The writer H. Clay Trumbull wrote about this as follows. What better heralding as a divinely sent messenger to Nineveh could Jonah have had than to be thrown up out of the mouth of a great fish on the coast of Phoenicia where the fish god was a favorite object of worship? The recorded sudden and profound alarm of the people of an entire city at his warning was most natural as a result of the coincidence of this miracle with their religious beliefs and expectations. Barosus gives the name of the Assyrian fish god as Oannes, while he mentions the name Odakon as that of one of the avatars of Oannes. Since the name Dagon appears frequently in the Assyrian records from even earlier dates, and no trace has been found in them of the name Oannes, it is possible that this name is a reference to Jonah as the supposed manifestation of the fish god himself. The name Awanus for Jonah appears in the Septuagint and in the New Testament with the addition of the letter I before it, reading Eowanus or Iowanus. However, according to Dr. Herman V. Hilprecht, the eminent Assyriologist, in the Assyrian inscriptions the J of foreign words becomes an I, or disappears altogether, hence Joannus as the Greek representation of Jonah would appear in the Assyrian either as Ionus or Oonus. Therefore, in his opinion, Awanus would be a regular Greco-Babylonian writing for Jonah. It's interesting how cultures and different people relate things to their religions. So a couple interesting facts before we dive into the official story. The description of Dagon, the fish god, historically is connected to the Catholic priests and hierarchy that practice in the Vatican. They wear the same types of robes and even their mitre, or sacred headdress, as the historical accounts of the priests of Dagon wore. Keep in mind that this was a pagan religion which followed Dagon. The people of Nineveh were highly pagan and worshipped the fish god Dagon, which added a divine element to the story of Jonah, as we lightly touched on a minute ago. Yahweh, the true God, knew their practices and wanted to call them to repentance and into a relationship with him, so he worked every event of Jonah's disobedience for good and shaped it into his ultimate plan. By having Jonah swallowed and then vomited up by the fish, the people of Nineveh had a reverence for him and the message he brought that essentially might not have been so strong without the involvement of a giant fish. This doesn't take away from the story at all, but it rather adds to it, because it was all in God's plan, and the historical accounts make it radiate with understanding. God knew that these people worshipped the fish god, who was part man, part fish, who came up out of the sea. So by bringing Jonah into the belly of the fish, and then having him come up out of the fish, out of the sea, with a message for these people, it made the situation so much more set apart. It made the situation so much more holy in the eyes of this pagan people. So God even used that situation to minister his word to these people. That blows my mind. Now the preservation of the name, Eunice or Jonah, at the ruins of Nineveh also confirms the historicity of the Jonah story. As soon as modern discoverers unearthed the mound that had been known for centuries by the name Nibai Yunas, they found it beneath the ruined places of the kings of Nineveh. Just a few more historical facts surrounding the Jonah story. Now, the people of Nineveh were also extreme and brutal warriors who would display dead bodies of their adversaries on poles surrounding their city walls. It's also recorded that they would skin some of their adversaries after battle and even hang the flesh on their walls. So we're not dealing with a very welcoming city. It made sense that Jonah wasn't overly anxious to go and do the work that the Lord had laid out for him. 
So first of all, he didn't want to go to these people and proclaim God's word. He didn't want them to repent. Fact is, they were enemies of Israel, if you do your studies. So, of course, Jonah didn't want God to show grace and mercy to this group of people. Secondly, he knew that they were a very warmongering people. So there, there was a few different things weighing in on the situation here. Now, finally, one interesting fact that we see here is that Yahweh God had a love for the Gentile people even before the early church when the apostles began evangelizing to the non-Jews. There are several accounts of God showing his love and his grace to the Gentiles in the Old Testament. But this is a pretty unexpected account based on their extreme barbaric and pagan practices. This really paints a clear picture of God's grace, ladies and gentlemen, as well as providing encouragement for believers to do what God commands us. So we've learned a little bit of a pre-story, kind of backing up what was going on in the days of Jonah. We've learned about Nineveh. We even talked about some historical accounts of people being swallowed by great fish and then being vomited back up. So we've done some proof texting, but now we want to go into the Bible. We want to go to the text. We want to see what the Word of God has to say about Jonah and what he did. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So when the Lord told Jonah to go into Nineveh to cry against them, to call them out for their wickedness and into repentance. Jonah fled. Okay, it says here that he fled. He didn't he didn't want to be in the Lord's presence. Jonah fled because he didn't like the message God had given him to share, which was to cry against their wickedness. So he fled from the presence of the Lord by jumping into a ship. And it said that he even went down into the ship. He probably thought he was going to be able to hide from God. Now verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God. Right here, folks, this is a sign that they all worship different gods, and this God was with a lowercase g. So the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise! Call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. So what we see here, folks, the storm was so bad that there was a danger of the ship to start breaking into pieces. Imagine being out at sea and the fear of the ship breaking and everyone drowning in the midst of a torrential storm. Then the men call on everyone to bring their personal luggage up to throw the things of less importance overboard. Now they did this because they wanted to lighten the load of the ship. While all this was going on, Jonah was sleeping downstairs, carelessly. So we see the captain wake up Jonah and call him out for sleeping in this time of emergency. He says, why are you sleeping? How can you be sleeping in this time? And then the captain commanded Jonah to call upon his God. Like we just mentioned, all these people worship different gods. And in a time of emergency, they all start calling on their gods because they're doing whatever they can to get some sort of help in this time of need. So Jonah and the captain then come up on deck. Verse 7 says, And they said, Every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. They wanted to know whose fault it was that this evil came upon them. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Verse 8, 
Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people are thou? The practice of casting lots is mentioned seventy times in the Old Testament, and seven times in the New Testament. In spite of the many references to casting lots in the Old Testament, nothing is really known about the actual lots themselves. They could have been sticks of various lengths, flat stones like coins, or some kind of dice. But their exact nature is unknown. The closest modern practice to casting lots is likely flipping a coin or drawing straws. Now, in the New Testament, it nowhere instructs the Christians to use a method similar to casting lots to help with decision making. Now that we have the completed Word of God, as well as the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide us, there is no reason for us to be using games of chance to make decisions. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and prayer are sufficient for discerning God's will today not casting lots, rolling dice, or flipping coins. And the fact is, they were casting lots to try to figure out whose fault this was, why this great storm came upon them in such an untimely manner. But the lots were cast, and the lot landed on Jonah, convicting him as the cause of this horrid sea storm that came upon the crew of the ship. So they began interrogating him as to where he was from, who he was. They wanted to know exactly what was going on here. Verse 9, And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and they said unto him, Why hast thou done this? You know, Why have you done this to us? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. Verse 11, Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. So he's admitting this is my fault. This is all coming upon you because of me. And it goes back, folks, to him running from God. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land, but they could not, for the sea wrought, and it was tempestuous against them. So again, they're trying to row to sea. They're trying to get through the storm without throwing Jonah overboard. Verse 14, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord, and they said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah, and they cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. The storm stopped. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. So they weren't happy with Jonah. They knew it was his fault. He admitted that it was his fault that they were in such a predicament. They then asked Jonah what they should do. And he told them, cast me overboard, throw me into the sea. And he told them if they would just cast him overboard, the sea would then calm down and the storm would stop. But the men didn't want to be responsible for Jonah's death. It says that they tried one more time to row their boat to land. But they weren't able to because the sea was so rough. The storm was so bad that their efforts were failing. So what did they do? They lifted up their voices to Yahweh. They made a prayer. And this this is so cool. Even in the disobedience of Jonah, God was preached to these unbelievers. And they even prayed unto the real God for deliverance from the storm. And they made vows unto him, it says. <laughs> I love that. God used the situation for good. So then they tossed Jonah overboard. They threw him into the sea. They cast him into the sea. It doesn't say he walked the plank, so I'm pretty sure we weren't dealing with pirates here. (laughs) It just says that they cast him into the sea, much like a fisherman would cast a net. So 
from this we can draw the conclusion that he was just tossed overboard. He was just thrown out there. Then to their surprise, the storm stopped and the sea calmed down, just like Jonah said it would. Now verse 17, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Folks, the fact that the Lord prepared the fish is something to be noted. When God prepares something, it's specifically created for a purpose and will always sustain the purpose. We need to remember that. So Jonah is now inside the belly of the fish. According to some of the historical accounts, it could probably be assumed that it was dark and slimy. I can't imagine that that it was a five-star resort. (laughs) However, God had prepared the fish for the housing of Jonah for the appointed time. This means that Jonah was protected and provided for. Then Jonah turned to prayer from inside the belly of the fish. It says in chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. Jonah's afflicted here. He's praying to God because he's afflicted. He's praying to God because he's in a time of need. He's in the belly of the fish. Verse 3, For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, and thy billows and thy waves passed over me. So what he's saying here is that God cast him into the deep, into the midst of the seas. And again, this is because of his disobedience here. Verse 4, Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. So what's he saying here? Even though I've been cast out of your sight, disobedience related, okay? Don't forget that. This is all because of Jonah's disobedience. He's saying, yet I will again look toward your holy temple. Jonah's wanting to make things right with God. Verse 5, The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I think this is getting into a nice description here. Okay, we know that in the belly of a fish, there's probably going to be all kinds of nasty stuff. So he's being surrounded by slime and water and whatever else is in the belly of the fish. And it says here that the weeds were wrapped around his head. Could it be seaweeds? Very possibly. Again, I think we're getting a description here of his situation. He's in the deep. He's in the belly of a fish, it's slimy, it's dark, and weeds were wrapped around his head. Now verse 6, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, the earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. So Jonah's in the belly of the fish, he's down very possibly at the bottom of the ocean where the mountains start. And even in this, he knows that God is going to bring up his life from corruption. Okay, He knows that he's going to get a second chance. He says, O Lord, my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So what we see here, Jonah's repenting, okay? And he's saying that he's going to pay that which he has vowed. And then he says, salvation is of the Lord. Okay, salvation, deliverance provision. He's going to be provided here. The Lord is going to salvage the situation. He's going to allow Jonah a second chance. So we hear a prayer of repentance. We see a change of Jonah's heart. This is vital. Now verse 10, and the Lord spake unto the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So as soon as the Lord gave order to the fish, the fish threw Jonah up on the dry land. The Lord spoke to the fish. God created the fish. If God created the fish, I would say he's got divine order over the fish. And let's not forget, God prepared this fish for this situation. 
chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now this is where we see more divine provision of God. I don't want to provide too much commentary here, but had it been anyone else coming into Nineveh, they could have possibly been slain. You know, we learned what type of people these people were. So if it would have been anybody else, they could have just killed the person. But Jonah came into the city in the name of the Lord, and he cried out a warning that the city shall be overthrown. He came in there speaking that this city is going to be overthrown in 40 days. Now let's go back to the text. Verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even down to the least of them. Let me back up one second. We don't see here that Jonah came in there. We don't see that Jonah said anything about God. This is something that's kind of interesting. He came in and he said that the city was going to be overthrown in 40 days. But it says here in verse 5, the people believed God. It would seem to me that God was already working in that place before Jonah came in. He was already preparing their hearts to know that when this man came in proclaiming their destruction, they were going to believe on God. They knew it was from God. So even if God hadn't put anything in their hearts prior to it, it says that they believed God. So regardless here, folks, they knew that what Jonah was saying was a proclamation of God. Verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe down from him, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed, and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? This is a bold action of true repentance. We see the mighty pagan king who generally would have been exceedingly prideful as a successful warlord. But in this instance, he's repenting and calling for a public repentance of all of his people through fasting and wearing of sackcloth and ashes. Now, for those of you who don't know, sackcloth and ashes were used in the Old Testament times as a symbol of debasement, a symbol of mourning and or repentance. Someone wanting to show his repentant heart would often wear sackcloth, sit in ashes, and even put ashes on top of his head. Sackcloth was a coarse material, usually made of a black goat's hair, making it extremely prickly and uncomfortable for anybody to wear. The ashes signified desolation and ruin. Basically, we're talking about being totally and utterly miserable and willingly uncomfortable. The significance of the fast is that the decree was made not just for people, folks, but it was also made for the animals of the land. This isn't something that we see regularly. We're talking about such a massive move of repentance by a wicked people who would have been the most least likely to ever repent in the first place. God has such an amazing love for his children, and he showed that love right here in allowing the pagan barbarians to come to him. And what a testimony this would have been for Jonah to see and experience. 
As a Hebrew, this would have been practically unbelievable. So we just witnessed a major act of widespread repentance and fasting by the people of Nineveh. So let's see how God responded. Verse 10, And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. So here we see God honored their acts of repentance through the mourning, fasting, and wearing of sackcloth and ashes, and he saw that their hearts had been changed as they turned from their evil ways. And that's what God wanted. That's what God wanted in the first place. He wanted to show them grace and mercy, but they had to repent to receive that. So God turned away from destroying and overthrowing them. That's what repenting means. We've talked about this before. Repenting means turning in the opposite direction that you were going previously. And it says that God repented. He repented of the evil that he was going to do unto them. So God turned away from destroying them. So this is definitely a positive ending. It's a good thing. They repented. They, they entered into God's grace and mercy. But unfortunately, folks, Jonah didn't think so. Let me take you back to the text, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and he said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? He's saying, is not this what I was concerned about before all this took place? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is unbelievable. This blows my mind. What we see here, Jonah wasn't happy that the Lord spared the great city of Nineveh. He knew that God was gracious and forgiving even before he entered into the ship to flee from God. We see he still didn't want Nineveh spared from the beginning. That now seems to be the main reason that he fled, according to the text. Despite the fact that the city was vicious, Jonah didn't want this city to enter into God's grace and mercy. How selfish. Now verse 4, Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? He's saying to him, is this really, is this really legitimate for you to be angry right now? Verse five. So Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city and there he made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. It would seem that he was still waiting and watching from afar off to see if the city was going to be destroyed. I mean, talk about the flesh here, folks. Even though God forgave the people, and they weren't Jews, they weren't Hebrews. So Jonah thinks that maybe there's still a small chance that God's going to destroy the city. I don't know. This, this is peculiar. It would seem that he was still waiting and watching to see if the city was going to be destroyed. Verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a gourd, and he made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. So what we see here, Jonah was grieved. And to make matters worse, he was sitting in the heat. And the Lord showed him mercy even in his bad attitude. God does that sometimes. God will do that to us. He shows us mercy and comfort even when we don't deserve it. And he prepared for Jonah a gourd which supernaturally grew up and provided a nice cool shadow which covered his head as he sat out there in the heat. Right as Jonah was enjoying the gourd and sleeping under it, the Lord does something interesting. Verse 7 says, But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted, and wished in himself to die. And he said, It is better for me to die than to live. 
Now, many of you are probably wondering, why would God prepare the gourd for Jonah to give Jonah comfort just to turn around and prepare a worm to eat it up, leaving Jonah to wake up in the blistering heat, sad and depressed again? We're getting to that here. Verse 9. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons, which cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Okay, so this is heavy duty. God set up the gourd to draw an analogy for Jonah. And not just for Jonah, but even for us here thousands of years down the road. God makes a great point here. Jonah didn't understand why God didn't spare the gourd. You know, he was upset that God allowed the gourd to be smote by the worm. The gourd grew up in one night and it died in one night. And Jonah didn't even labor over it. Jonah didn't even do anything to create the gourd or to help the gourd. But then he expected the Lord to spare it despite the natural circumstances. But he didn't want God to spare an entire city of people. Now, it says there that there was more than six score thousand. Now, a score is 20. So six score would be 120. So the city had more than 120,000 people that couldn't even discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. So there's a couple interesting things I want to mention here. Some people believe that that is a reference to... 120,000 children. Though we can't really prove that, what I tend to think this is saying here is that there was more than 120,000 people that couldn't discern right from wrong. That's my personal understanding of that scripture. But Jonah was more concerned with the gourd. He was more concerned with God sparing the gourd for his personal benefit than he was for God to spare the souls of the city. This was a confused and lost city, ladies and gentlemen. It was a complex of pagans who didn't know right from wrong, but miraculously they repented. They entered into God's grace and mercy. But Jonah didn't want God to spare them from his judgment. He cared more about the gourd than the souls of the city. It seems strange that a preacher would be angry that his listeners repented of their sin. He realized that if the people of Nineveh repented, God would spare them. The prophet was angry at their repentance because he would rather see them destroyed. There are several possible reasons for Jonah's desire to see Nineveh destroyed. First of all, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, a ruthless and warlike people who were enemies of Israel, historically. Nineveh's destruction would have been seen as a victory for Israel. Now, secondly, Jonah probably wanted to see Nineveh's downfall to satisfy his own sense of justice. After all, Nineveh deserved God's judgment and Jonah knew it. Third, God's withholding of judgment from Nineveh could have perhaps made Jonah's words appear illegitimate. I mean, after all, Jonah had predicted the city's destruction when he first entered into the gates. So we really we really can't put ourselves inside of Jonah's head. The best we could do is make some assumptions. But here's the deal, folks. We can learn from Jonah's negative example that we should praise God for his goodness. Our God is a merciful God. He's willing to forgive all of those who repent of their sins and turn from their wickedness, folks. That's what the repenting is. People who will turn from their wickedness and accept Christ. The Ninevites were Gentiles, yet God still extended his salvation unto them. In his goodness, God warned them before sending judgment, giving them a chance to repent. The fact is, God cares for people of every nation. He is by nature a savior. 
As Luke 15 reveals in the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, God's heart is for the redemption of all who will come to him. Furthermore, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 emphasizes God's call to take God's message of the good news to all the nations. As believers, we must heed this call. We must be ready to share the gospel in season and out of season, any chance we get. Romans 1.16 also emphasizes the importance of sharing the gospel with both Jews and non-Jews. It's so important to remember some key themes of the story. God is sovereign, okay? God is sovereign. He controlled the weather and the great fish to achieve his ends, to achieve his purposes. God's message is for the whole entire world, not just people that we like or people who are similar to us or people of our race. God requires genuine repentance. Folks, I can't stress that enough. Let me say that again. God requires genuine repentance. He is concerned with our heart and true feelings, not good deeds meant to impress others. This seems to be a major problem in the church. People think by their works they're saved. People think that their good deeds that impress other people are going to elevate them somehow. That's not how God works. He's concerned with our heart, the feelings that we have in our heart. God is forgiving, folks. This is, this is the best part about our lives. We can be forgiven. God is forgiving. He forgave Jonah for his disobedience, and he forgave the Ninevites when they turned away from their sins. And that same holy and righteous God has forgiven me of my sins And he's willing to forgive you of yours upon true repentance. I'm sure many of you listening right now have experienced the saving grace of Yahweh God, which was given through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ Yeshua on the cross. For that, folks, I'm truly grateful. But ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening right now and you haven't accepted Jesus Christ and you haven't repented of your sins, today can be your day of salvation. I want to specify something here. It's not about saying a little prayer. That won't work. So many people have bought into this lie from Satan that all you have to do is say a little sinner's prayer. If you just say that little sinner's prayer, you're saved forever. No matter what you do, you're going to heaven. Okay, it's not the little sinner's prayer, folks. The doctrine of saying the sinner's prayer for salvation has pulled so much wool over the eyes of Americans. That seems to be a major lie that we hear on TV and we hear at revivals. It's just, it's not true, folks. Okay, the sinner's prayer won't work in and of itself. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to acknowledge your sins. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner and you truly have to turn from them and accept that Jesus Christ took on your personal sins on the cross. Christ didn't deserve it. He was sinless, but he took on our sins on the cross. Justice was served that day. You must persevere and finish the race with a true living faith. And it's not easy, friends. As a matter of fact, it gets extremely difficult at times. The spiritual battle actually gets much harder upon accepting Christ. You're not going to hear that most places. Most pastors are just trying to get you to say this little sinner's prayer, and they're going to tell you that life gets so much better. The whole Joel Osteen gospel of have your best life now, that's not biblical. I'm standing here before the Lord Jesus today, and I'm telling you, when you accept Christ, you're entering into a spiritual battle. But here's the good news, folks. When you you enter into the grace and mercy that the Lord offers us, you also enter into His divine protection. And He gives you a provision that He has made available through Jesus Christ Yeshua. And through the Word of God, we get an armor. You can learn about the armor in, in the book of Ephesians. You can learn how to put on the whole armor of God to defend and to protect yourself in these times where you're under that spiritual battle. God loves you, 
And he wants every one of you to walk in the light of Christ. I want you guys just to think about Jonah. Anytime the Lord tells you to go and do something, when the Lord has called you to do something, when the Lord has sent you on a journey to spread his word, to take his grace to somebody, whatever it may be, I don't know where you're at right now, folks. I don't know what God's telling you to do. But don't be like Jonah. The fact is, we've all been like Jonah at some point in our lives. Not only through disobedience, but also through lacking grace and mercy. So folks, I want to encourage you. Go and do what the Lord tells you to do. Be His messenger. Do His work. Share His gospel. Whatever it is He's telling you to do, go and do in faith. And the other thing, folks... Make sure that you're living in the grace and mercy of Christ and that you're sharing that grace and mercy with others. Jonah didn't want to share that grace and mercy. He didn't want this other group of people to enter into that grace and mercy. But folks, as Christians, none of us deserve grace and mercy. It was a gift given to us. So we need to take that gift and share it with others. We should be grateful when other people enter into that grace and mercy. I hope you've enjoyed this week's broadcast as much as I have, as this is one of my favorite Bible stories. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T.com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.